Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Have you ever had uh, something that happened in your life that ended up a bigger deal later on as you reflect back on it and you're like, wow, I didn't really realize it at the time, but that moment really was impactful. Uh, Maybe you kind of knew that it was a meaningful moment at the time or that there was something going on, but you didn't know how much it was going to impact you for the rest of your life. Let me give you an example. Mr. Crampton was my seventh grade English teacher. And he came to our school for one year as a part of a teacher exchange program. And he was from Alberta, Canada, which gave him this super cool accent. I had never really heard an accent like that before. So I would sit in English class and I would just listen, like say about one more time. Just (laughs) say about one more time. And what he did was though, he made English awesome. Yes, I said that. He made English awesome, like you do, that I hear from my daughter. And you can tell two things about Mr. Crampton that I really appreciated. Number one, he really loved his kids, his students. Like, that just oozed off of him. And number two, he loved English. Yes, that's possible. He loved English and saw what an impact it would make on someone's life if they really pressed into it. And I remember during lunch hour, my friends and I wanted to eat as quickly as possible because at this phase, our lunches were an hour long. They were like a whole period. And so we would try to eat as fast as we could so that we could get down to the gym and play basketball. We wanted, like if we could maximize how long we played, we were in on that. Because you know, we all had to work on our NBA draft status that was gonna come a few years later that we were all absolutely convinced was going to happen. And I remember this one particular day, we're playing a half court game. It was a game of four on four. And man, the kid was feeling it. Like I was killing it, man. In my mind, I was like Michael Jordan in my bull cut hair and giant glasses and big sweater, man. I was killing it on that floor. And one thing I wasn't doing though, I wasn't passing the ball to anyone. Because let's be honest, why would I? (laughs) I mean, these kids were there just to enjoy the show, right? Like they should have been honored and thankful that they were on my team. Because man, I was putting it everything in. And I remember that Mr. Crampton was on teacher duty for that day. And he was standing off in the corner and he was watching us play. And I'm like, oh, he's got to be loving this. <laughs> I mean, what a, he didn't know when he came to America, he was going to witness this kind of basketball. <laughs> and, and so after the bell rang and we all had to go to class, Mr. Crampton came over and he said he wanted to talk to me. So I was like, fine. I'm thinking in my head, I'll sign what you want. It'll be my gift to you. It'll be worth money later when I go number three. But instead, after everyone left, Mr. Crampton looked at me and he said, you're pretty impressed with yourself, aren't you? Kind of like, what do you, I was shocked by the tone of his voice. I didn't know what to say. And so I just kind of stared at him, you know, like a seventh grader does. And then he said something I'll never forget. This is almost verbatim, at least in my head. You made yourself look foolish and selfish. You didn't make your team or anyone around you better. 
All you did was show everyone in that game the only person you care about is yourself. No one had fun. No one wanted to be on your team. Is that the type of athlete and person that you want to be? If you want to be great at basketball, I remember him putting his finger right in my chest. I'm like, ow. He was like, if you want to be great at basketball or great in anything, being selfish is not the way to get there. Make others around you better and that they're a part of something. And then he just looked at me and goes, now go to class and think about that. And I was like, just shell-shocked, just totally shell-shocked. And it took me years, I'll be honest, to realize what a profound moment that was for me. Like, I'll be honest, what made me think then has steadily grown in my life to be one of the most impactful lessons that I've ever learned. And that moment was really a life-changing moment that began to unfold that life change, even now to this day. In keeping with that same idea, there are lots of moments in the scriptures that we can encounter and read and miss how profoundly life-changing they are. How profound what we see in a text makes in the overall storyline of the Bible and how that storyline helps shape our worldview and how we live, think, and move in it. Today, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 14. And it's easy to read this chapter and to get kind of lost and confused with all the names of so many kings and so many places. I love my sweet wife. I was walking through the house the other day. She looks at me. She goes, I can't read a single name off of this list. Like, what the heck is going on? There's kings here. There's places here. There's like these kings going after these kings. What is going on? And then you have this mysterious encounter at the end of the chapter that is just like, where did that come from? And this could lead us to quickly move on and just miss the significance of Genesis chapter 14 and the profound gospel seeds that are planted in it. See, these seeds that we're going to look at today bear, in, bear an incredibly weighty harvest that are not just good bits of information to know, but really has life-altering significance for every person in this room. So if you remember, Darren did a fabulous job last week of looking at Genesis chapter 13. And if you remember, here, here was kind of the, the, uh, what happened in Genesis 13 that sets the tone for what we find in 14. Abraham and his nephew Lot had to separate. See, both households shared land and had become really, really wealthy in gold, in possessions, in livestock, and in people. And this began to cause friction between Abram's house and between Lot's house because they had to share grazing land. And so the servants start to fight with each other over who gets to eat what grass. So Abram came to Lot and said, guys, we, we, we need to stop fighting. It's, it's time for the two of us to go as what Journey and Steve Perry sang, our separate ways. And so what happens is, is the whole land lies before them. And Abram postures himself in a very humble way and says to Lot, listen, you pick whatever land you want. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Just pick what you want, Lot. I'm tired of the fighting. And Lot looks up and he looks at the land and it's like, man, rich, lush, awesome, populated 
That's where I'm going. And so Abram goes the other way. So Lot goes east. And what we now know is close to where the land of uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are. And it says he camped out on the outskirts of Sodom, which is a hint that that's not a good decision. And we'll see why uh, in this chapter and really why later. And Abram goes west into the land of Canaan. In Canaan, God comes and speaks to Abram again, providing clarity to the promise that he had given in chapter 12. In chapter 13, verses 14 to 18, just to remind us, here is what happens. So Abram's now in the land of Canaan. He is separated from Lot. And it says in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that no one can count the dust of the earth. So, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came to settle by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. See, we've got to remember this. We can't wander far from this. Remember, God had promised to make Abram great. And that from Abram, um, God's going to make a great nation out of him. And that this nation is going to be uniquely blessed by God as his people. And they will live under God's promise and under his provision and under his protection. God promised to give Abram and his descendants uh, land. And that in this land is where they would dwell with God. And that from this nation, God was going to bless the entire world. So God tells Abram, look around. This land that you're standing on, look all over. North, south, east, west. Walk it. Check it out. This is the land I'm going to give you. And so Abram settles in a town uh, near Hebron in the land of Canaan where he builds another altar where, which is where he worships the Lord his God. And every altar is like planting a flag in the ground. It's like staking the claim that goes, this land is going to be mine. Right there. And then we move into chapter 14. And in verses 1 through 12, here's what we see. This is the very first war talked about in the scriptures. And I'm just going to do a quick flyby because we've got to get to the end. Four kings from this northern region, one outside the promised land, goes to war against five kings from the general region that Lot had settled in. Does that make sense? These four kings go to war against these five kings that had rebelled against him. They were under his rule. They rebelled. They come down. They're like, no, you can't rebel. I'm going to beat you. Two of the kings that go to war against these, uh, these northern kings uh, Kings are from Sodom and Gomorrah, so they're right where Lot lives. We learn from this section that Lot has actually moved from the outskirts of Sodom to now he actually lives in Sodom itself. Another move showing foolishness on Lot's heart. Stay tuned for that because we'll get to what that means later. But the four kings from the north soundly defeat the five kings. So much so that in verses 11 and 12, here's what we read after their final defeat. It says, so the enemy, these are the four kings, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah 
and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of, Abraham, of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So you see what's happening here. These four kings come down, defeat everybody, take all the possessions, including Abram's nephew Lot, and they start to go back home. They soundly win and begin to ride home enriched by their victory. They took, them, uh, they took with them all these possessions of these defeated kings, including Lot and all he had. So then we jump into verse 13, and it says that one of the people that was taken escapes. And they made their way to Abram, and they tell Abram what had happened. And when Abram heard this, the text tells us, you can go home and read it for yourself, says he put a force together. He took 318 of his trained warriors that were born in his household, and they go off to rescue his nephew Lot. Abraham, or Abram chases these kings and catches up with them in the extreme northern part of the promised land. So he just books after them, right? These kings are heading home. He's just booking after them for a rendezvous with destiny. And what happens is, is that he catches up to them and he puts this plan together and resoundingly defeats the enemy kings and then chases them out of the land. And here's what we read in verse 16 is the result of, Abraham, of Abram defeating these four kings. Verse 16 says this, Then he, meaning Abram, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abraham wrecked shop. He went John Wayne and brought and is bringing it all back. So as we pick up the story in verse 17, Abram is returning home. So get this picture in your mind. He is on a victory march, and he is very much riding high on his fame as a mighty warrior. There is no doubt people in the land knew that's the dude that just completely destroyed four kings and is bringing everything back. Not only were the four kings defeated, but everything and everyone that they took is brought back as well. Nothing and no one is missing. Abram is now a mighty warrior. Could this be the moment he takes the land? Well, this is where we pick up the story in verse 17. So let's read verse 17 to 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. If we're not careful, we can read right over this and move on to the next chapter. And if we do, we will miss something monumental. On his way back, Abram, we read, is met by these two kings. One we know, one we don't. One king is from defeated Sodom. The other is the king of Salem called Melchizedek. Verses 18 to 20 give us the only recorded thing about Melchizedek at this time. Like the only thing we really know about him comes from this text. It tells us that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, that he was a priest of Most High God, and we see him bless Abram. Melchizedek is interesting because here's what, we, here's what we see. He's totally mysterious. He's an international man of mystery. We don't know what he is. First, he comes out of nowhere. We don't know what line. We don't know what lineage. We don't know when he became king or when he died. We don't know if he's a Canaanite. We don't know if he's a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. We have no idea. And here's what makes this interesting. Priests of God throughout the scriptures, we know their lineage. We know where they come from. We know when they died. We know how they became this, this priest because they're, they're from the right tribe. Uh, they, they, they have a, a start date and an end date. But all of a sudden there's this Melchizedek that just shows up out of nowhere. His name, which by the way could be a title over a name, and his throne carry tremendous significance. Melchizedek is Hebrew for king of righteousness. Melchizedek is, is a, it's a compound word in the Hebrew, king of righteousness. And he, his throne rules in the town of Salem, which means peace, and is also traditionally short for Jerusalem. So here you have this king of righteousness who sits on a throne of peace, And in one man, we see righteousness and peace united. Melchizedek then also brings this meal of bread and wine. Now, this is probably sparking something in you, right? A priest king bringing bread and wine. What is going on here? Here's what you see. Melchizedek, this king of righteousness and peace, comes out to the victorious Abram. And, he, and, and, what, and what, what he's doing is he's showing his tremendous generosity and his tremendous care for Abram. See, only kings regularly ate bread and wine. This was not a common meal. But what he does is he, this kingly meal was given for the good and the provision of Abram. And sometimes I wonder if you also see a validation that God is making Abram royal. Because all the way back in his promise in Genesis 12 in the Hebrew language, in what God says to him that I'm going to make your name great, there's a hint of royalty in that. 
And so he brings this out. See, uh, Melchizedek was, was, uh, was providing, was being generous king. But Melchizedek was also not only a king. He was a priest. He was a priest of God Most High, verse 18 says, which means that Melchizedek rules both as a king and as a priest. That's a big deal in the Old Testament. Because here's what we need to know. As you read through the Old Testament, the offices of king and priest were never found in the same person. Never found in the same person. If one tried to do the duties of the other, they were immediately rebuked by the Lord. No Old Testament king was ever appointed to be a priest. None. Now, some did priestly things from time to time, but they were never holding the office of king and priest. Yet here in Genesis comes this one man who appears in this one text who pops out of nowhere, who is a king priest of righteousness and peace. For those of you that have read your Bible, you probably have some things buzzing in your mind right now, don't you? Melchizedek comes out, provides a meal, and then he blessed Abram. And we see two beautiful things in the blessing that Melchizedek gives. Number one, Abram is uniquely blessed by God Most High. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Meaning he is affirming and declaring to the world that it is the God who stands alone as God where there is no other, the Most High God who made and owns all of heaven and all of creation, this Alpha and Omega, this eternal God who in his wisdom and brilliance made all things, govern all things, and will bring all things to its rightful conclusion. This God is the one who is uniquely blessed Abram. It's not like John Smith down the road blessed him. It's not like some other minor God with a little bit of authority blessed him. No, the one who holds all authority has uniquely blessed him. And number two in his blessing, we see that God most high is who granted victory to Abram. Look at what it says in verse 20. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. God continues to fulfill the promise that he would bless those who bless Abram and he would curse those who curse him. Abram was able to be victorious not because he is great, but because God is great. And this great God will be the one who causes Abram to be great. Meaning this, Abram has no greatness on his own. So Melchizedek, in this blessing, confirms for Abram and for all to hear that God Most High is indeed on Abram's side. What a declaration. What a celebration of truth. How would Abram respond to this? I mean, he just defeated four kings. He could apply that power now. He could stand up and go, that's cute. Let me show you what real power is. Would he seek to, to greatness on his own? No. In response, look at what the last sentence of verse 20 says. Abram, in response to this, gives a tenth of all he has to this king. This is a show of honor. This is a show of deference and acceptance of the blessing 
and the blesser. Abram is not going to seek any claim to victory for his own fame. Giving a tithe means you give the very best of what you have in order to show that honor and in order to show that honor and deference to the one you're giving it to. He's not just picking out the, the garbage stuff. You know, like one time I had somebody come into my church uh, when I was in Syracuse. This was like in 2011, and they brought in a computer from the 90s. And they were like, we were doing some cleaning out, and we thought we'd give this to the church. I'm like, why? <laughs> what am I going to do with that? The church is not the junk collector. <laughs> That's a statement, by the way. Please take that to heart if you hear anything today. <laughs> But the entire interaction that's happening here is rich with gospel imagery. And it hints at extremely important truths for how we are made right with God most high. More on that in a moment. But then what we see happen is the king of Sodom, right after this happens, the king of Sodom with no hint of humility, no gratitude of any kind for having his stuff brought back. He simply looks at Abraham and says, give me back my people you can keep all the stuff. And Abram responds by an absolute categorical rejection of that offer. And he says, no, 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 I've lifted my hand to Yahweh, who is God most high. He is the only one, and I'm only gonna take what I, what, what I need to make the journey home. I'm only, I'm only gonna take my expenses. The rest is yours. He says, I'm not gonna take even the smallest amount, not a thread or a sandal strap from what belongs to you, King of Sodom, because I don't want you to take any credit for my greatness or my wealth. Abram is not interested in giving the King of Sodom any claim on his life. He does not want this king to say to someone who comments on Abraham's greatness one day, you know, I helped make him. You know, I gave him his start. He took some of my money, you know, he's great, because, you know, I kind of have a little bit of that. No, Abram knows his victory is from God alone. He is staking his entire claim of his, the entire claim of his life on God most high and on every one of his promises. He has no plan B. He is not taking God in his back pocket and going, what else can I find as greater insurance? With God, you don't need insurance. God is the guarantee. God is the fulfiller of his promises. God is the one who, who nobody can thwart his purposes. Nothing else will be able to claim a, a thread or a sandal strap of his success or of his greatness. So what are we to make of this? Oh, I wish we had three hours. What are we to make of this? Because here's what happens. In the in the timeline of the, of the scriptures being written, Melchizedek is not even hinted at for another thousand years until you get to Psalm 110, which is this amazingly royal psalm that looks at the house of David, which is where God's kings come from who rule on the throne over God's people and is looking at it and go, what is this king going to look like? Why should the king's people rejoice in this king? Why is he such a big deal? And you see throughout that psalm uh, that, that, that he is a sovereign Lord, that he clothes his people with goodness, that he defeats his enemies, that he is a secure king forever, and that this king is also, God says, I swear to you, that's Psalm 85. Psalm 110, verse 4. 
This king who clothes his people, who executes judgment through the world, who will sit on an eternal throne for all time, verse 4 tells us, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, king, that sit on David's throne, who will be my everlasting king, will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The king and the priest office will be united once more. And that's the only obscure passage, and then it goes silent again. And you're like, okay, so we see this weird interaction with Melchizedek here, this king priest of righteousness and peace who blesses and receives tithes, all of a sudden is brought back again that says this king of David that will rule his people forever will also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then it goes quiet again. And now all of a sudden you go all the way to the New Testament. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus comes from the nation of Israel, which rose from Abraham. And this Jesus who comes from Israel is also a descendant of the king of David. And he is a king. He is the appointed king who is to sit on the throne forever of David. He is God's promise fulfilled that he gave to David, saying, one is going to come after you that's going to sit on your throne forever, and he will rule your people, and he will love them, and he will guide them, he will shepherd them, he will be a prince of peace, he will sit forever, is also our great high priest. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to the book of Hebrews. I implore you to go home and read Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. The book of Hebrews is all about teaching us that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is our rest and the founder of our salvation. And then there's this long section that, that, that the writer says, and Jesus is our one true great high priest the high priest that stands in the gap between God and us. He is the mediator between God and us. And for a long time, God established a priesthood in Exodus chapter 28 from this guy named Aaron. And this priesthood were known as the Levitical priests. And they served in the temple that that would be built. And their job was to kind of be the mediators between God and the people. And they lived in the temple and they served in the temple for a short period of time. They had to be from the right lineage, from Aaron. And they offered sacrifices and they helped mediate the covenant and the word. And all of a sudden we see that God's plan was not to see the priesthood go through this Levitical line. It was to come through this Melchizedekian line. That this priest that does not come from Aaron, but that comes from a better place. Because here's what you notice with Melchizedek in Genesis 14. It doesn't tell about his lineage. It doesn't tell when he died. That tells you something. It gives a whisper of eternity, of a priest that has no beginning and no end. It doesn't mean that Melchizedek does, but it gives a taste that this high priest who will be king lives forever. 
We also see that, that he has no necessarily earthly genealogy that would qualify him to be a priest. It doesn't say anything about that. But yet he was called by God to be a priest. Just as Jesus was called by God in Psalm 110 verse 4, I have sworn by an oath you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here's what Hebrews chapter 7 says, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Melchizedek points to. Jesus is the one true great high priest that is to receive our worship, that is to receive our devotion, that this Jesus is the one mediator between man and God. We don't need an earthly priest. We need a divine priest that stands in the gap, that doesn't offer sacrifices for his own sins, but who lays his life down for the sins of his people. Because what Genesis 14 hints at is that God's people need a priest. We need someone to do the work for us. We, need, we can't just boldly and casually approach the throne of God without a mediator. That is to our doom if we do that. And yet, look at what happens in chapter 7, verse 25 of the book of Hebrews, talking about Jesus. I'll start in verse 23. 22, sorry. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There, the former priests were many in number, talking about the Levitical priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, oh, what a verse to memorize. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Because he is our king, he fights for us. He holds us in his sovereign power. Nothing thwarts his kingly reign. And because he is a priest, he made sacrifices for us so we could be forgiven. He is the one who ushers us into the presence of God Most High. Because he is a priest, he continually, think about this, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, right now, for all of your life, every second you breathe, Jesus is interceding for you. He is praying for you. He is interceding for you. He is holding you. He is ministering to your heart. And he is merciful, faithful, and just. And because he was made like us, knows everything you go through. Every temptation, every hardship. He knows what it means to be crushed with sorrow, depression, and grief. He knows what it means to feel abandoned. He knows what it means to feel like, like the whole world hates me. And yet he was without sin. And he puts himself on a cross as the ultimate sacrifice, meaning no other sacrifices are needed to satisfy God's wrath because our priest king did it for us. And then three days later in a display of immense power, 
power. He walks out of the grave, validating and vindicating everything he says. And he is ascended to the right hand of God, sits on his throne as a priest king forever, and says, I will come again, and I will reestablish order, peace, and wholeness on the earth again. And I will be, I will be my people's God, and they will be my people. And death shall be no more. If you are trying to approach God without the priestly work of Christ, you're walking into judgment. If you are approaching Jesus as your priest who offered the right sacrifices for you, who lived the right life for you, who now rose from the grave showing that you can be forgiven and given a new life and you come to him as your king priest, he will usher you into the presence of God Most High. So my question to you is, when you read the scriptures, do you read it self-centeredly or do you read it Christ-centered? Because every story in this book whispers his name. Jesus is the one in whom righteousness and peace kiss and live forever in him. Jesus is the one true priest king that all of our hearts have been needing and longing for. He is not interested in looking at your best effort. He is looking at you coming to him in humility and in faith. And like Abram sees the greatness of Melchizedek and says, I'm not an equal with you. He actually sees Melchizedek as one greater than him. And he gives him, he gives him his best stuff and says, here, in the same way we come to Christ and say, I'm not coming as an equal. I'm not coming as one who thinks I deserve this. I'm coming as one going, thank you. Here is my life. Make me new. I am yours forever. And he will make you new. Live into that newness. Live into the security and peace of your priest king who has granted you righteousness and given you peace because he bore wrath and judgment. What a king priest we have. Melchizedek simply hints at him. Jesus is the fulfillment and the genuine article of him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And God, I am so thankful. I am so thankful for uh, Jesus, who is our true king of righteousness which, is, which simply is this, righteousness, God, is your goodness in whom there is no darkness. He is our king of righteousness and he is our king who gives us peace because he was chastised on our behalf. God, I thank you that he is a king who sits enthroned forever, whose power, dominion, and authority has no end and he will never be shaken off of his throne. And yet, God, I am also thankful that he is our priest who is merciful, who is compassionate, who has offered right sacrifices, who intercedes for us even now and who continually and surely enters us in to a right relationship with God Most High. 
Oh God, I pray that we don't chalk this up to just fun little facts that we know about the Bible, but that God, we would stake our entire claim on the person and work of our priest King Jesus Christ. That we would push, that, that we would see righteousness is only granted by faith in him. That peace is only granted to us by faith in him. And that there wouldn't be a person here that would not have their faith deeply rooted in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and God, may we worship him. Like Abraham gave the best of his stuff, may we give the best of our lives and our stuff for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.